is awesome. But um, I'm super stoked that we uh, are kicking off this new series, and I'm going to explain a little bit about it uh, now for the for the next little bit. Uh, basically, today we're embarking on. Uh, quite an adventure as a family of churches common ground around Cape Town. And the plan basically is we're going to do a deep dive into the book of Ephesians, a letter written by Paul. It's in the New Testament and it's going to take us 19 weeks in total. Uh, uh, and how we're doing is we've broken those 19 weeks up into about five uh, mini series, which we're going to intersperse with other series along the way. But by the end of the year, we would have uh, journeyed deeply uh, through the book of Ephesians and unpacked it and explored it and hopefully learned a lot. And, uh, Today is week one of our first mini-series, which we've called In Christ. Oh, never mind. Uh, go back one more. Uh, In Christ. There we go. Um, Ephesians 1, and it'll take us through to uh, Ephesians 2, chapter 10. So we're just going to be um, exploring that little chunk of, of Scripture. And uh, we're also going to be doing a deep, di- deep dive in life groups. And so if you're not in a life group, I'd love to say, hey, get in a life group. They meet on uh, typically Wednesday afternoons. I'm not sure if there's any other nights in Greenpoint. All our ones in Seapoint are on Wednesdays. Um, get involved. Um, we unpack scripture together, but we chat much more deeply about how we apply it to our lives um, and, and start to figure out, hey, how do we practically follow Jesus in our day-to-day life? So that's the plan there. Um, but then there's one extra thing, and now I can do the drum roll, and you can bring up that, that, that slide back. Um, one cool additional resource. Um, it's called a Going Deeper resource, and it's on our website. If you just hop on our website, go to the In Christ page, you'll find this there on Mission in Ephesus. Um, the reason that I can be particularly excited about punting it um, is because I got to work on it, um, and a, a lot of it actually. Basically, we wrote this thing in about 2016, uh, myself and the two student interns from Bosch PM at the time. We spent, um, once the students were having exams, finishing up the year and going on holiday, we spent uh, about six weeks um, deeply investing and figuring out chapters 18, 19, and 20 of the book of Acts, where the, the church of Ephesus is planted. And so we put together this, um, it's pretty much a 100-page resource, um, which you can check out. And what's cool about it is there's, uh, if you like this kind of thing, there's historical background, there's maps, there's timelines, there's pictures, there's character profiles of the people that were there. We did commentary on select passages. We put in um, devotionals from the, the passages in Acts, as well as uh, the book of Ephesians itself. We try to grab with tough theological questions, and so it's quite an awesome package, um, if I might say so myself, um, that uh, I highly recommend to you, um, and it's been slightly tweaked uh, for our purposes now, but uh, I, I would love to point you towards it, even though it feels awfully self-serving um, in the moment now that I'm up here. Um, so, so that's that. Uh, today, uh, I get the, the, the cool opportunity to launch not only, I guess, this five-week mini-series in Christ, but the whole Ephesians journey, in a sense. And um, it's going to be quite unique today in that I'm, what I'm going to try to do is set up the context uh, of the letter of Ephesians, um, give us some, some background ideas. And actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just tell us the story of the Ephesian church, or at least the, the, the planting and the early years of the Ephesian church that we have in Scripture. And so what we're going to do for the next half hour or so, I don't know what else to call it, except uh, an attempt at a dramatic retelling of Acts 18, 19, and 20. For those of you who are here and ready for your, your three-point um, life hacks to take home, you're not going to get them, I'm sorry. Um, but it's going to be a very, very unique Sunday, and we don't normally... Uh, uh, preach like this. As I say, normally we do unpack a text and try to point, pull out three or four major points and apply them to our lives. And this is going to be very, very different. But I want to say that 70% of the world's um, learning happens through narrative. 
and storytelling. Um, there's lots of things in your life, a heck of a lot of things in your life, that you have learned because you watched TV shows. Uh, and that just happens to be true. Traditions, um, hundreds of cultures across time have, have passed on oral traditions and, um, and learnings from simple things of um, don't eat this root, it will kill you. And there was a story that went along with that. So the children internalized, I must stay away from that thing. Um, but in so many ways, narrative storytelling is one of the, the, the biggest ways we learn. 60% almost of your Bible is narrative. So God has clearly um, even has a bias towards narrative storytelling in the, in the, the God-breathed word that he's given to us. And Jesus, who uh, is the centerpiece of the Christian faith and in our uh, minds, the centerpiece of world history, also told stories upon stories. And so the, while this is going to be a unique thing, um, I do want to say that um, it is actually quite a common form of, of education in, uh, in the majority of the world. And so I'm inviting you now to, to, to listen in, to lean in. Um, there's not going to be slides of all my points coming up. Um, and sort of grab your metaphorical popcorn um, and go on a journey with me as we, as we explore um, the early days of the Ephesian church. And if you're not a Christ follower or you are a Christ follower, um, I invite you to just come back with me and, and take this journey. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back right now into the middle of the first century, AD, the middle of the first century. And... There's a small coastal town called Miletus uh, in the province, the Roman province of, of Asia Minor. And picture with me uh, a prayer meeting happening. We find ourselves with a group of people in a time of prayer after what's been a, a lengthy and final address given by, by one man. And there's, uh, in this prayer meeting, a sense of this one man actually being the focus of the time. They're praying for him. They're laying hands. Um, and people are actually crying as this is happening. And um, when they're done, they embrace him one at a time. But there's this underlying sorrow in, in every heart in this prayer meeting because they know they're not going to see him again, ever. And after several years of adventure and hardship and some of the most meaningful and dramatic experiences that these people have ever experienced in their lives, this is it. It's over, at least in the, the, the way they've known it. And they walk with him down to the ship that was waiting for him at the, the docks of Miletus, and he got on the ship and left for Jerusalem. And I want to ask us, what, what happened between these, these people? What had gone on here? What had caused such strong bonds? And what were these stories and these memories that were filled with uh, such significance, but not only for them, but would be significant for generations and cultures that would come down the centuries? What had happened? So come back with me from that point, three years, to A.D. 52. A.D. 52. And picture an an ancient wooden ship in the Aegean Sea between uh, Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And on this wooden ship stands this, this man, and his name is Paul. And as he's on the ship, he scans the horizon and he sees nothing but water all around and, and blue sky all above. And he's considering his place in the world. He's a man singled out by God, the one true God of everything, to carry a, a message, a transforming message about Jesus, God in the flesh, as well as to be a demonstration of the power of this God to the, the Greek-speaking world, beyond the, the, the Jewish nation, where God's word and his power had been demonstrated for centuries. 
And Paul's a Jewish man, uh, but he also possesses Roman citizenship, which is, which is very rare in that time. And he spent most of his life steeped in the Jewish scriptures because he was a member of an elite group uh, called the Pharisees who learned the, the first five books of the Old Testament off by heart by the time they were 12. And long before he was on this ship today in the Aegean Sea, perhaps maybe 15 years previously, Paul had been a zealous Jew who, who thought that this little sect that had broken out in Jerusalem um, were a bunch of blasphemers. That was his view of them. He thought that their claims were absolutely ridiculous, that this, that this Jewish peasant named Jesus, whom the Romans had crucified, had actually been raised from the dead and was in fact the, the long-awaited Messiah that had come to change the world. Paul thought this was absolutely ridiculous. And then one day in the midst of one of his murderous rampages against these people, this risen Lord Jesus, Lord of the world, appeared to him in a, in a blaze of glory that frightened Paul to his absolute core, knocked him off his horse and temporarily blinded him. And in this moment, this Jesus gave him the task of spreading his message beyond the Jewish world. And Paul's whole life and whole world and whole trajectory was completely changed. And now 15 years later on this ship, he's, he's seen God's faithfulness through, through the ups and downs and the struggles of life. He'd been commissioned by church leaders under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to go on missionary tours across the whole Roman Empire preaching this word. And on the way, he, uh, he found various companions and uh, he, had, he had more that, he, that went with him when he started. And two years back, he'd, he'd been in Athens, and he was debating with the great philosophers, talking about Jesus and what he'd said. And um, not long ago, he'd been in the, the port city of Corinth, this debaucherous city of, of, of vice and wickedness. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't an easy time when he was there. He faced some serious opposition. People got on his face. He became infamous and evil in that city. Because of his message. But one night in a dream, Jesus came to him once again, the risen Lord, and said to him, Paul, do not be afraid. Go on preaching, because there are many people in the city who are mine, and your message of good news is going to transform them. And so he stayed another 18 months before boarding the ship that he now stands on. And as uh, they're crashing through the waves, uh, Paul feels the, the wind in his arms. He, he doesn't feel it in his hair like he normally does because he's, he's actually just had it cut recently because of a vow that he'd taken and his hair's, his hair's very short. But that's another story for another time. And the vast ocean makes him feel small. The small little ambassador of this transcendent God who's Lord over all the universe. And with him on the ship are his companions. He's got Luke his personal physician that he met in Macedonia, and Luke considers himself a historian. And Luke would one day go on to, to write of the works of Jesus and the apostles in, in what history would call the books of Luke and Acts. Also with him on the ship are Priscilla and Aquila, this, this young couple who, who loved Jesus that Paul met in Corinth, and they, they planted this, this, this kingdom community in Corinth, and, and they're with him too. And one day, they're going to be with Paul in Rome, though none of them know it, in the, 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 the capital of the known world at the time. And also with him is, is Timothy on board, Paul's protege, who he's, he's, he's raised and he's, he's fathered, has been journeying with him for many years. And then he sees it, land appearing north and south, and then directly ahead of him, 
growing on the horizon, almost as if rising out of the sea itself, the city of Ephesus, the great capital of the province of of Asia Minor. And nearly 500,000 people can be found in this city. And Paul thinks that's, that's half a million people who need the message of the kingdom, who need their lives transformed by God. And Ephesus was this bustling port city, okay? It was the, it was the center of trade and commerce. It was the, it was the political, economic, and religious hub of this, this entire region. And, uh, what he would have seen straight from the port would have been the harbor road that went straight up to the great amphitheater. He would have been, been able to start seeing the, the Agora marketplace and the baths and libraries and, and houses that would have been quite common in, in cities like this. But none of this would have compared with one of the most majestic sites and one of the greatest achievements, human achievements, of antiquity. The great temple of Artemis. This, this, this massive human achievement of construction. Now, Artemis was uh, the many-breasted Greek goddess of uh, virginity and fertility. And this, this temple was four times the size of the Parthian that he would have seen in Athens. 100 pillars over 20 meters high. This just gargantuan thing constructed by her worshippers. Now, Paul had no intentions to stay in Ephesus that long, to be honest. Paul was actually on his way to Antioch, uh, going back to report to the church that had sent him all those years back to, to preach the gospel in these, in these lands. But that being said, he felt that, hey, I should do what I can while I'm here uh, to, to share the kingdom at least with the Jews so that they would, that they would be able to start grappling with, with the message of Jesus. So as they disembark, the crew uh, starts searching for accommodation as Paul goes directly into the bustling synagogue. And using scrolls upon scrolls of the ancient scriptures, he spends days reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, reasoning with them to see what he's saying and his message can be seen all throughout their prophetic literature. And it's a great dialogue, and um, they all agree with Paul, uh, firstly, that, 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 that they find themselves in, in a present evil age, an age characterized by, by human sin and the very real powers of dark spiritual forces like Satan and his legions and the fact that death is truly reign, reigning and has dominion over everything in every shape and form. They, they agree with Paul on that. And they also agree with Paul um, on the, the idea of a Messiah, that there would be a, a promised one, an anointed one, who'd come and end this evil age and usher in the kingdom of God, and, an age and a realm uh, of everything restored to how it should be. Life under the rule of the one true God, with, with justice and peace and love and joy, ruling and reigning. So they all agree on this, but Paul's great spin on this whole thing is that this carpenter's son from Galilee, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the Messiah. And he's not actually just a mere man. He's actually God come to live in human form. And this sort of thing blows their minds, and they're trying to figure it. And, and Paul says, yeah. And he died on a Roman cross about 20 years ago. And what happened was, on that cross, he took on human sin, and he paid the punishment for it as he was killed. And while he was killed as well, he had taken on the, the, the powers of Satan and darkness and death. And they did their worst to him. And somehow, on that cross, he defeated them. And then he was, he was raised from the dead three days later in some new glorified physical body that was going to be the prototype for, for more of these bodies that would fill out the kingdom of God. So this took them by surprise, first of all, as you can imagine. But then on top of that, they were trying to figure out 
the fact that this, this age hadn't come to a clean end. In fact, this future kingdom age has actually just broken in in part. And now that Jesus has ascended and he's ruling and reigning, this, this kingdom age is spreading by the power of his Holy Spirit through his, his followers. And it's spreading throughout the known world. And these followers were starting to be called the followers of the way. The followers of the way. And what was, what was pleasing to Paul about this experience, unlike pretty much most of the experiences that he'd had so far, was that these guys weren't up in his face, uh, at least for now. They, they seemed to be very receptive, and they said, hey, Paul, would you actually stay on? Would you keep, would you keep teaching us? And uh, unfortunately, he, he had to refuse, but he, he said, I'm going to leave members of my crew, more of my, my family, really. I'm going to leave them with you um, to keep journeying and keep exploring and keep forming a, a community of the way. And then he said, but I'm trusting that God is sovereign and he's in control over all, and if he wants me to come back here, I'll be back here. And then he was gone. Caesarea, onto Jerusalem, and eventually to Antioch, back to his base church. And after spending some time there, he departed, and he went from uh, one place to the next, up through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples and all the churches that he'd already planted on his, his previous missionary journeys. And while he's gone, in Ephesus, uh, this great teacher called Apollos rocks up to the church. And Apollos is this eloquent and highly intelligent man who uh, you'd assume that because he came from Alexandria. Alexandria was the great city of Egypt with the, the largest library the world had ever known. And Apollos came and he partnered with Priscilla and Aquila in teaching the church. And along the way, um, Priscilla and Aquila sharpened his theology a bit and then sent him on to Corinth where they where had already planted a church to go and strengthen them. And it was at this time that Paul passes through the inland country and he finds himself back at Ephesus. And God has, has guided him there. Not like he's guided him once or twice before with prophetic dreams and words, but the Holy Spirit had guided him circumstantially and he had arrived back there. And his first encounter upon arrival is with this strange group of disciples. And somehow they've, they've, they're, not, they're not cruising with Priscilla and Aquila and the group that he left. Um, and his first observation is these, these Christians seem to lack power. And they seem to lack the very, very visible presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so he asks some questions. And eventually he, he tells them about Jesus more accurately. And they get baptized. And the Holy Spirit descends on them. In a powerful way, in such a powerful way that in, in, in an instant, all of a sudden, this whole group of about 12 start to prophesy out loud and start speaking in angelic tongues. It's almost a, a bit of a chaotic scene. And even Paul at that moment is, is refreshed with a renewed sense of, of power. And so him with his, his new companions return to the synagogue and they start to preach and teach and reason and engage with, with, with the Jews, some of whom were believing and some of whom were starting to actually get really anti about their message. They were starting to get very offended, and they started to speak trash about them in the city of Ephesus. They said, these followers of the way are evil. There's something evil going on here. And so Paul decided in many ways to, to cut his losses, and he took his, his companions, and he moved across to the hall of Tyrannus, this massive lecture theater in the city of Ephesus. And he got permission to preach in this hall, in the middle of the day, somewhere between 11 a.m. And, and 4 p.m., which was the heat of the day. And at that time, most people were actually not working. They were looking for shade. And so they would come and they would, they would hear Paul preach. And so Paul settled into to life in Ephesus. 
He earned a living making tents, which was his, his trade. He continued to preach in this great hall on almost a daily basis. And he preached about the good news of Jesus' arrival. And he spoke about Jesus' return. That was going to happen one day. That Jesus was going to come back. He was going to wrap up this present evil age. He was going to judge the world and usher in the kingdom for good completely. And he also spoke about what he would call the way of Jesus. What, what this kingdom life looked like for people here and now. So he'd talk about marriage and family and work and, and how to um, deal with relationships and how to, how to deal and treat your thoughts and feelings inside of you. And it, it included the full, the full story of the world from God's perspective. And Paul called this whole thing the, the whole counsel of God. Two years later, two years later, Paul has preached nearly every day for those two years at the Hall of Tyrannus. And he's participated in Ephesian life, and he's been continuing to meet with and live with this, this growing community in Ephesus of followers of Jesus. And there's Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and Luke. And there's more that have been added, Erastus and Gaius and Aristarchus. And this church is growing. But not only this, because Ephesus, remember, was this, this bustling hub, the central uh, city in the province of Asia, um, there were thousands upon thousands of people in these two years who had come into the city and passed through the city and gone back to the surrounding regions and the towns and taken this message of the kingdom, the good news. They'd taken it back with them to those places, so much so that Luke would later write, the whole province of Asia has heard the gospel. The whole province of Asia had heard the gospel and it had rung out from the hall of Tyrannus and people had encountered the Christians. They saw this way of life lived out. They heard the message and many people across the whole province of Asia now had this new worldview. They considered this new worldview and there were plenty who, who changed their mind and were adopted into the family of God and became participants in the kingdom of God. But as we said, it's been these two years since that first message in the Great Hall. And the message has gripped both Jews and Greeks in Ephesus. And Ephesus itself has radically changed. The city that Paul arrived at is not the city he now lives in. And its trajectory would continue. Because everyone in the city now knew Paul. And they knew those people that Paul was with. And how could they not? They had the central message, which everyone was talking about. They had these, these other teachings about life. But beyond this, there was this very real and sometimes scary power that accompanied them. And what was happening was handkerchiefs and aprons that sometimes just touched Paul's skin were taken off to people who were sick and their diseases instantly left them. And they would take these, these handkerchiefs and aprons and sometimes go into houses and lay hands on people. And demons, the very uh, residents of the evil age that were living inside people, were driven out by the kingdom of light. This wasn't stuff that was happening in a corner. It was happening in everyday Ephesian life. At the same time, there was, this, there was this bunch of Jewish exorcists who thought, hey, we can get in on this action. And so this group of seven Jewish exorcists came into town, and they started trying to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And it didn't go well, because A, they didn't believe in Jesus, and so they didn't possess the power that Paul had. And it turned into an absolute dog show. What happened was this demon-possessed man who they were trying to use the name of Jesus on leapt on them, 
beat them senseless, ripped off all their clothes until these seven men found themselves running out of the house naked down the harbor road of Ephesus for everyone to see. It didn't go well. And what, what happened in this time, not just because of that event, but because of everything, was that a, a great and beautiful fear of God fell upon the city of Ephesus and many people. What was happening was more and more people were repenting of their sin, repenting, saying sorry that they hadn't been following God, saying sorry that they had actually been um, following themselves, worshipping other deities, practicing and um, being involved with the occult. And this, this surge of holy fear and people coming forward, it culminated in this, in this public event where they created this massive fire in the city streets that would have lit up the, the night sky of Ephesus for the whole town to see. And, and what happened was all these people started bringing their, their, their magic and divination books and throwing them in the fire, causing more flames and sparks to go up. And what they were doing was trying to say, hey, this is a public display of, of repentance. Now, the people looking on thought this was crazy. The, the total value of the books that were thrown in this fire would have been about 50,000 pieces of silver. If you lived in that time, that would have been an obscene amount of money. Millions and millions of rand, if you're trying to do a, a conversion in your head. But what they were doing was displaying the end of their old life and their joy of a new life, to love Jesus and trust Jesus and leave that old way behind them. And more and more people were experiencing the, the freedom of forgiveness from sin. People were experiencing the adoption into a new family and this hope of the kingdom of God that the, the city of Ephesus that they have lived in for all their lives never gave them as they consistently just lived lives of churning daily rhythms. And Luke would one day write these words, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And we come into the final act now. If this is a three-act play, we've had to. On a regular day of, of prayer and meditating on the scriptures and encouraging and guiding and teaching and correcting the church and eating and doing life together, Paul had this overwhelming sense that the Holy Spirit was telling him to leave, was telling him to, to set sail from Ephesus. He felt that the Spirit was saying, go back to Corinth first, then go on to Jerusalem, and then, and then go to the place that you've been yearning to go to for years, the, the center of Caesar's power, the capital city, Rome itself. This was, the, this was the charge Paul felt. And so what he did was he sent Timothy, who's now Paul's son in the faith, faith. he sends Timothy on ahead, to Corinth, along with a new brother of theirs, Erastus, and they, and they go on. But before Paul leaves, there's one final consequence of what God is, is doing in Ephesus. And in a sense, it's the, it's the straw that kind of broke the camel's back for, for many people in the city who, at this point, um, uh, didn't love their message and didn't want forgiveness for their sins and didn't believe in, in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and the kingdom of God. And it was the fact that not only individual people had been transformed and, and their lives were different. No, that was fine. But what had happened was the actual city itself had now been turned upside down by this good news. Societal structures and, and entire industries had actually come under threat 
because of the, the multitudes being converted to what would one day be called Christianity. People had new appetites and people had new desires of worship and it was no longer towards Artemis or other gods. It was towards Yahweh, the, 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 the God of Israel that turns out to be the one true God. And what was to be the, the final days of, of Paul in the great city of Ephesus, it turned into a riot, a proper riot. And what, what happened was um, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, in Ephesus, he used to make these mini shrines of Artemis, little miniature replicas of the temple in silver. And he got into a rage because the worship of Artemis was obviously hugely profitable for him. You might say, you might link it like this: it's it's like how the worship of sex would be profitable for pornographers and sex traffickers and owners of brothels and strip clubs. And that whole industry, his whole industry of, of worship of Artemis was coming under threat. And so he gathered together a large group and he said this, Men, you know that, that from this business, we have our wealth. From this business. And you, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and he's, he's turned people towards this Jesus and away from Artemis. And he's saying things that, that's crazy, like, like gods made with human hands aren't gods. Are you hearing me, people? And, and we're in serious danger of our trade drying up and our great Artemis being defamed and, and, and maligned and mocked. Do you hear me, people? And as they, they heard this, they were enraged and they entered into a wild frenzy and this whole group started shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they got stirred up into a massive frenzy and it broke out among the whole city of Ephesus. And confusion filled the whole place. And there were people like Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's companions, who were in the middle of a very ordinary day, and suddenly the crowd pointed to them and grabbed them and dragged them into the great theater. And acts of violence started happening. And, and Paul saw this, and he tried, to, he tried to rush and join them, but a whole bunch of the disciples grabbed him and held them back and said, we can't let you go in there, because if you go in there, they will kill you. They might not kill those guys, but they will kill you. And for two hours, this riot ensued. And it multiplied and multiplied, and there was such confusion to the point that most people, in the end, didn't know what they were there for. They didn't know what they were rioting about. It's one of those moments when humanity just loses it. And eventually, the officials managed to intervene, and Demetrius and his corps were told, Guys, go to the courts if you've got an official problem. This is, this is, this is not how we do things here. And so they were sent on their way, and Roman law and order was restored that day, and Paul was alive, and Gaius and Aristarchus were still alive, but it was, it was time to go. And so after the uproar had ceased, Paul, Paul gathered his disciples, and he encouraged them, and he said farewell, and he, he departed for Macedonia and Greece like he planned. And after some more adventures, Paul had, had hoped to stop by Ephesus again in a few months, but because he was in a haste to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, he, he sailed past Ephesus. And he ended up stopping at a, a port city called Miletus. And he decided, you know what, I need to speak to the Ephesian elders one last time. And so he summoned the Ephesian elders to join him in Miletus from Ephesus. And he gave them one last final address. And I'm going to read it to you word for word from the book of Acts. 
He said to them this, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, but that I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that I thought was profitable. And I taught you in, in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who's brought the kingdom. And now behold, friends, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit to do that. And I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. But friends, I, I don't account my life of, of any value, nor as, nor as precious to myself as, as you'd know. All I want to do is finish my course and finish the ministry that the Lord Jesus has given me to testify to the good news of the grace of God for all humanity. So now behold, friends, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom and doing life together for all these years are going to see my face again. And so I testify you, to you this day that, that I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of all. I didn't shrink back when I could have from declaring to this whole city the whole counsel of God. And elders, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the church here in Ephesus because you've been made overseers to, to care and love for this church that, that God bought with his own blood when he came in the flesh. And you need to know that, that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock. They're going to try and wreck this church. And, and I don't know how to say this, but from among your own selves, men are going to arise speaking twisted things to, to lead the flock astray. So therefore, guys, be alert. Remember that for three years, I didn't cease night and day to teach people with tears. And now I'm commending you and the church to, to the grace of God and, and to his word, which is able to, to build you up and give you that inheritance among the sanctified, the, the people that are set apart for the kingdom. And I remember while I was here, I didn't covet silver or gold or apparel. My own hands ministered to my needs, to my needs and the needs of others while I was making tents and we were sharing things together. I've showed you all that, that by working hard, we must help the weak. And remember the words of Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And then he finished his address, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul, and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him down to the ship in the Miletus docks. And Paul didn't know if he, if he would be back. And history is uncertain if he, if he ever did return. But he did write. And in Paul's twilight years from a, a Roman prison cell, he would pen two letters to Timothy in the last years of his life. To Timothy, his, his son in the faith, faith who was now the, the lead elder of that church in Ephesus facing seemingly insurmountable odds. 
And before the Apostle John would also one day come and be an elder in that church towards the end of the first century, Paul wrote one more letter. And we call that letter Ephesians. And it was written to the church in that city. And it was spread around to the surrounding churches in the province of Asia that had all been planted during his time there when the gospel had rung out daily for two years from the hall of Tyrannus. So I just have two questions for us today. And this is the end. But these are my two questions for each and every one of us. What do you believe and what do you want? They're two different questions. What do you believe and what do you want? The story that I've shared with you today is, is a true story. It's what happened 2,000 years ago. And I want to ask, what do you believe about Jesus, about the world, about yourself, about the story I've just shared? What do you believe and what do you want to see happen in your life? And what do you want for your life? and for the lives of your friends, and for the city of Cape Town, and the world around us, in the the very literal one and only life that you have? Those are the two questions I want to leave us with. The band's going to come up, and um, we're going to respond to this story um, by taking communion. And uh, you can stand with me. And uh, communion, for those of you who don't know, is a... a symbolic remembrance of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross, the, the, the centerpiece of the story that Paul carried with him, the, the centerpiece of the, the letter to the book of Ephesians that we're going to explore for 19 weeks. When Jesus was on the cross, he took the punishment for human sin, yours and mine, against God, and on the cross he defeated the powers of Satan and death as well. And so the, the, the red juice is symbolic of Jesus' blood that was shed. And the, the bread or crackers are symbolic of Jesus' body, which was brutally broken in that, in that very real moment. But as I've said, and I hope you've, you've heard from the, the words of Luke and the, the words of Paul, that this is a joyous thing. This is a victorious thing. This, this news that, that these things represent, this news has spread. 2,000 years later, Paul wouldn't even have imagined that there was a place called Cape Town and there were people worshiping and gathering together in these kingdom communities called churches uh, that they started planting way back then. And so this is a, this is a time um, to, A, reflect, come before God and repent of sin, but then to embrace the fact that we're free, we've got a, a, an eternal hope of a kingdom, glorified bodies like Jesus, and we've got stuff to get on with here that's an adventure, that's significant, that's going to count. Much like 2,000 years later, we're reading the accounts of Paul and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila. One day we'll tell about these stories in history from our years in Cape Town and South Africa and the beginning of the 21st century. And so let's do this with joy. Let's do this with celebration when we sing afterwards. Um, and let's then worship together and, and consider our lives and consider our church um, and let's, let's do life together like Paul would have done with the people in, in Ephesus.